0: My name is Hallie Dollins and I'm a senior at Second Baptist School University Model. Actually, 18 years ago, I was dedicated right down these steps. I received my Little White New Testament and have been a part of the Second Family ever since. I made the personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as my savior at the age of five. From the teaching of my parents and programs like Giggle Here at Second, I was sure of my sin and that I needed a savior. At the time, I was mostly concerned with not going to hell but I had a complete though simplistic understanding of what my salvation meant and the truth of the gospel. I believed that even though my scope was limited, my faith was genuine and childlike. As time went on, I continued to grow in my faith and my understanding of scripture. I made the personal decision to be baptized here in the second as the age of eight, as a public outward display of my faith in obedience to Jesus' example. From then on, I just kind of went through the motions of living a Christian life. I was growing and learning, but, It was pretty casual, but that all changed 10 years ago, in the summer between second and third grade. My parents called me into their office and told me I would be leaving my old school and going somewhere new, a school they were starting. I was a little sad about leaving my friends, but I was excited to see what was to come. And that school is now known as SBSUM. One of the best things about this new school that really impacted my life was the daily inductive Bible study we got to do. For the first time ever, I was reading and studying God's word for myself, and I was learning so much. I continued this method of study all through middle school and was gaining a lot of head knowledge. The problem was that that knowledge remained just that, knowledge. I wasn't really applying anything I was learning to my life, and it actually ended up being a stumbling block for me in the long run, because that knowledge turned into a lot of personal pride. Jesus was my savior, but that's only one part of being saved justification. I also need to submit to what his word says and continue to be sanctified, surrendering to him as what they call in the children's ministry as the boss of my life. Instead of examining where biblical truth I was studying could aid me in my walk with Christ, I was that kid, the one who raised their hand for every question, corrected teachers on their pronunciation of hard Old Testament names, and completely checked out every time they brought up the gospel because I had heard this one before. I was constantly comparing myself to my peers and judging them for their actions without ever taking a hard look at my own. I was working really hard to do all the good things I thought I was supposed to do, but on the inside, I was not reflecting Christ. It wasn't until I took a hard look at the Pharisees of the New Testament that something clicked for me. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not just hearers who deceive themselves. Matthew 23, 27 reads, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! "'For you are like whitewashed tombs, "'which on the outside appear beautiful, "'but inside they are full of dead men's bones "'and all uncleanliness.'" Matthew 7, one through five says, "'Do not judge, or you too will be judged. "'For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. "'And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. "'Why do you look at the speck of sawdust "'in your brother's eye and pay no attention "'to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Before, when I read these passages, I had condemned the Pharisees for obsessing over unimportant things and ignoring the truth of Jesus right in front of them. But as I studied this over time, I was convicted that I was just like the Pharisees. I had all this information and truth about how God wanted me to live, and I wasn't doing anything with it but judging others and being self-righteous. It was only when this truth hit me that real life change began to happen. Areas of pride, deceit, or hate in my life began to change for the better. We say salvation is accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but before, i had only placed Jesus as the Savior of my life. Verses that made this clear for me were Luke 9:23. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I learned that having Jesus as Lord over your life meant surrendering to his will over mine after this turning point, my spiritual growth throughout the rest of middle school and high school has been exponential. There have still been trials and areas of sin I've had to deal with, but having Jesus as Lord over my life has made learning and growing through those times possible. I know that this sanctification process is not of my own abilities, but only the Holy Spirit in me. And none of my works, only what Jesus did for me on the cross, is what saves me. As I said before, 18 years ago, I was dedicated to write down these steps, and I received that little New Testament. But that New Testament wasn't alone on the shelf for very long. Every two years since I was born, another one or two has been added, making me the oldest of 10 kids, with one on the way. When we're all together and meet new people, there are guaranteed talking points. Yes, they're all ours. Yes, we have our hands full. No, we're not Mormon. And yes, Costco makes sure that they really do come cheaper by the dozen. Being the oldest of the tribe, isn't exactly like the Brady Bunch. Laundry day looks like an Old Navy after Black Friday, and we draw straws for the mountain of dishes left behind three times a day. We can all change diapers in 20 seconds flat and perform all basic first aid. At this point, I automatically just quadruple every recipe we make, and we prepare 10 lunches on school nights. Sometimes, babysitting on a day when there's a party or going to six soccer games every Saturday is discouraging when I compare lives with my friends. Often I wish my family was normal, like when I had to learn to drive a nine-foot-tall 15-passenger van while all my friends got Jeeps. (laughs) Or when the size of our Chick-fil-A order scares the employees. But those moments are fleeting, and when I hold another newborn in my arms, as I'll get to soon, those feelings go away entirely. I know my life isn't and never will be normal, but I don't want it to be. Having a family this big and all going to the same school has spent more time with my siblings, and my second home here at church has only allowed my relationship with the Lord to strengthen through opportunities like the jump team and small group Bible study. I'll be attending Texas A&M University this coming fall. And I know my walk with the Lord is just beginning, but I'm so glad that Second Baptist Church and school have been pivotal in my spiritual formation, and I have peace resting in the promise of Philippians 1.6 for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus.
1: Hi, my name is Rebecca Williams and I'm a senior at LaPorte High School. So growing up, the, rules, the house rules were based off Christian beliefs, but I didn't have that intimate relationship with God. I didn't know the gospel, And to be honest, I didn't even know why Jesus was so important. God didn't seem real to me. I was more interested in the things around me that I could see and feel. Plus, it didn't help that I always felt like an outsider when I went to church, because I didn't really understand what was being said, and I was shy, so it was hard for me to make friends. I felt this way about church up until my freshman year of high school. I was in the living room watching the movie 2012 with my dad. And if you haven't seen it, it's basically about the end of the world. And it got me thinking about the end. I wanted to learn more, and I knew that the book of Revelation was about the end of the world. So I went up to my room, and I flipped all the way back to the back of my Bible and started reading. Yeah, I don't recommend starting off in Revelations. <laughs> I have never read anything so scary before in my life, especially for someone who didn't know what Jesus did on the cross. I, the only thing that kept going through my mind was, how do I save myself? I saw that it kept mentioning people who were chosen by God, saved, and I worried that I wasn't chosen. I can't explain to you how excluded I felt and the fear that I experienced. I figured all the books before Revelation had to tell me how to save myself, to get to be a part of those people who get to rule the earth someday. It's kind of funny how my own selfishness brought me to God. However, looking back, I think that's the only way he could have reached me. To be honest, at that time, I was the only person I was concerned about. I was obsessed with what other people thought of me. When I went to school, it was constant insecurity about the way that I walk, or the music I listen to, or the clothes I wear. I was all about trying to look good and fit in. A few days after that night, I wanted to read more, but I had no idea where to start. I tried the beginning, Genesis, but it wasn't really giving me the answers I was looking for. I didn't care about how the world started, I just wanted to get to the good stuff. You know, the whole living thing? Well, sometime later, my grandma mentioned that the book of Matthew was a great place to start off. So later that night, I opened up to Matthew and I started reading, and I couldn't stop. It was so interesting, like a storybook. It was miracle after miracle. I was especially so surprised to see that there was a stronger side to Jesus, that it wasn't all soft and love thy neighbor, which is what I grew up thinking. What he had to say was so controversial. There was more to Jesus. (laughs) He wasn't just a shallow character in a book, like I began to see him as a real person. So in the next month or so, I finished up the New Testament and some of the old, but I was still so hungry for God. I remember one night just crying in amazement for what he did on the cross. However, I struggled with this doubt. I couldn't completely believe that he would choose me. I felt the enormity of what he did, but it was for everyone except me that God was dangling salvation right in front of me and I could never be good enough to get it. I didn't deserve it. I mean, of course I don't deserve it, no one does, but in the next few months, God was revealing to me that it wasn't about me and what I did, but instead it was about him and what he did, who he is. He finally opened my heart to accept that this beautiful salvation that he was, salvation that he was offering might actually be for me, and I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. Now, at this time, I didn't have a church family, so I was teaching myself through the internet, but I eventually felt this yearning to be a part of a community. My dad had worked at Second Baptist for a while, but I just never thought of coming here because I always saw it as his place of work. But I figured, why not give it a try? What's the worst that could happen? So I come, the first day I come, I go to the 11-11 service, and I really liked it, so I walked up to the altar and I joined the church. And after attending Second for a while, I decided it was time for me to get baptized, which is an act of publicly showing your dedication to Christ. I told my dad and he grilled me for days on what it meant and how much of a big deal it is. But once he was sure that I understood, he made it happen. I got baptized and I tried to live my life honoring God from then on. However, I struggled with staying consistently in the Word. I would go through this cycle of being in it and then getting distracted and falling away from it. And while I was struggling with this, I met a guy and we started dating. God completely lost the spotlight in my life. All my attention was focused on this guy. And it lasted like this for a year up until Beecher Tree of 2021. I was talking to a few of my group leaders about this and one of them said something that completely changed my perspective on the relationship. She said, do you trust this man with your future kid's salvation? I sat there and thought, of course I don't trust this dude. I saw that this relationship wasn't honoring God, and I came to the hard reality that I had to end it. And it was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do. This past year has been me trying to get refocused back on God. Beach retreat was like a mark in my timeline that signified me turning away from this almost spiritually dead state that I had been in for the past year. I even got rebaptized. It was just something that was on my heart. And I'm not saying that you have to get re-baptized every time you go through a dry season, I'm just saying that I felt like the Spirit was leading me to do it. I even tried fighting it. I kept telling myself I've already been baptized, there's no reason to do it again. But it was like I was being urged to. So after Dr. Young had finished calling for people to get baptized and was making his way off the field, I chased him down so I could talk about it with him. I finally catch up to him and I, I get his attention, but I couldn't get what I wanted to say out. With all the emotions, all I could say was, I've already been baptized. And I kept saying it over and over again. He had to finally hold my face and say, do you know how many times I've been baptized? Before I knew it, I was in the water getting baptized. (laughs) Looking back, I see how God used that moment as a spark that ignited this fire in me to get to know him even more. God had turned me from this person who was surrounded by insecurity to someone who found identity in his strength. I hope that my story could help you realize that you are wanted by God. And whatever you are putting in his place, whether that be a love interest, a job, school, whatever it is, please realize that it will never truly fill you. Ask yourself, is it more important than God? Are you willing to die on that hill? Matthew 10:37 says, those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. And those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Of course, Jesus isn't saying that you should drop your family and stop loving them. He was all for family and loving and respecting each other. He's just saying that he should be the most important thing in your life, which doesn't mean that you can't have other things that you value. It just means when those things go above God, then you have a problem. When you say money or a job or this person is more important to me and more deserving of my time, then you are putting that thing above God. This past year has been amazing. I've had godly friends enter my life who keep me accountable. And I even still talk to my roommates from BR The Weekend, and they're some of the sweetest people I've ever met. I've started bringing more friends to church and getting more involved. And I actually leave this fall for Abilene Christian University to major in family ministry. And Of course, I still struggle with some of the things from before, like selfishness or getting distracted sometimes. But now I have faith that no matter how bad I mess up, God is still willing and ready to help me learn and forgive me. I am now a part of his family.
2: In 20 days, I will walk across this stage, receive my diploma, and finally graduate from high school. My name is Lainey Sims, and I'm a senior here at Second Baptist. I, like many of us, still remember my first day here. My dad, who was a lifer here at Second, walked me into a vibrant yellow classroom bustling with third graders, many of whom were bound to be my lifelong friends and still are to this day. He left me there that day not knowing that I too would walk the same hallways, sit in the same classrooms, take the same classes, and even learn from some of the same teachers as he did. This has been one of my greatest blessings. Those same third graders who greeted me with open arms, curiosity, and a lot of laughter are still encouraging me today, except now I'm 18 instead of 8, and I feel like I know less about what I want to do with my life now than I did back then. Our topics of conversation have evolved from what we wanted to play at recess or what we had for lunch that day or what our favorite colors were to worrying over an AP Lit test, complaining about our practice schedules, and stressing about our futures. Recently, my time hasn't been filled with playing kickball or trying to read more words than everyone else. Rather, it's been filled with studying and frantically refreshing my email to see if I got into that top school. Standing here before you, it's surreal to me that my time here at Second is almost over. If you take a quick walk around campus, you're bound to run into someone from my family. It's no secret that Second Baptist has played a large role in our daily lives. Next year, I will attend the University of Arkansas to study international relations and political sciences on a pre-law track. If you know me, this major makes sense. I like to say that I thrive when I'm busy and I feed off of chaos. So I filled my time here at Second with participation in various activities, one of which is Model UN, which I'm involved in on an academic and competitive level, and honestly, I could probably stand on the stage and talk to you for five minutes about seemingly obscure topics, ones which you would swear no one had an opinion on. But trust me, I have an opinion. I've learned that I'm a problem solver, and I've grown accustomed to not shying away from conflict. Through this, I've had the opportunity to take on various stances from various nations on various topics, opening my eyes to the reality of how beautifully intricate our world and its inhabitants truly are. Every detail is part of a story so sophisticated and so simple, which points us to creator, a creator who is so powerfully creative. I am constantly in awe at how he uses every person to glorify him, and sometimes I have to take a step back and remind myself that he also uses my life in his greater story of redemption. Not mine, but his. When I was asked to share my testimony, I would be lying if I said I weren't a little nervous. Not because I was afraid I would mess up or because I hate public speaking, I genuinely enjoy it, but because I simply did not know what I would say or how I would say it. Having grown up in the church, I've heard countless redemption stories. Stories of people who were stuck in darkness and found the light. Stories of people who had big coming-to-Jesus moments. I, feeling the need to compare my story to others, never had a big moment I could point to, claiming it as my big turning point. Because of this, I underwrote and diminished my own salvation and put myself in a box, believing that I didn't have anything to say. My parents have always made endless sacrifices to raise me in the stable, Christ-centered environment we have here at Second. Despite this, I failed time and time again to recognize the dynamic story that God is writing in my life. It's no secret that the past few years have been filled with countless trials for my family, years full of sickness and addiction, loss and grief. While I could easily stand here and dive into a deep and winding path towards a personal anecdote about my own capabilities, it would not be worth my time. In this day and age, there are enough churches you could join or places you could go if you wanted to hear an emotionally driven story. With the tap of a finger, you're there. Bookshelves are brimming with self-help books, Instagram feeds are flooded with overly encouraging narratives, and school curriculums are contaminated with false proclamations that do nothing to further develop the minds of students. Fortunately, I was graced with the absence of such ideas in my classrooms here at Second. However, I've grown up at a time where such things are inevitable. Your truth is different from my truth. You are enough. Come as you are and stay as you are. You don't need anyone but yourself. These are the messages that infiltrate our media. Even within the church, we can become enthralled with the way the gospel makes us feel. Did I enjoy the worship? Did I like the preacher? Did I, did I, did I? But we should rejoice in the truth of the gospel. After all, it's called the good news. So, why do we feel the need to seek out worldly guidance that makes us feel good? The reality is, many of us fall prey to these selfish desires due to our sinful human nature, which longs to do everything we do in pursuit of our own ambitions. I, too, fell into this trap. This selfishness was manifested in my life as a desperate need for control. I could not get a grasp on the flurry of hardships surrounding me, so I attempted to take control of my, of my own life by hyper-focusing on minor details. My appearance, my grades, what I ate, how productive I was, I had to control every aspect of my life. The problem was, the culture around me told me to do whatever I wanted to do, to do whatever felt right to me, and to chase after everything my heart desired. Now, this was entirely different from what I had read in God's Word. Was I not a sinner? Was I not consumed by selfish desires? The truth became blurred, and my lines became crossed. I was lost, and I didn't know what to do, but by God's grace, I was able to lean on those around me who pointed me to God's Word. And you know what? The reality is, we aren't enough. In fact, Ephesians 2, 1-3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, that's pretty dark and depressing and could be confusing. But aren't we thankful that Paul continues and contrasts this in verses four through seven, which say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He sent his one and only son to die for us while we were entrenched in our sins, knowing that we may never love him back, and even if we did, we could never measure up, The most radical, profound theological statement is the same truth that has been poured into me since the day I got here, and that is the fact that Jesus loves me. This incomprehensible, uncompromising love is so radical and so ample, it is the only thing that can truly free us from the bondage of our wrongdoings. Although I felt the weight of not measuring up, a feeling which resulted in my belief that I didn't have a story to tell, I have learned that I'm in fact not enough, but that being inadequate is perfectly okay. I don't have to be enough. My testament, too, is also one of God's consistency and faithfulness to his children. I have witnessed his gracious kindness in my own life and have witnessed his goodness in the lives of those around me. His heart is embodied in the people I am beyond blessed to have on my side, such as my dad, who has, made, who has taken on the role of being a single parent and has made incalculable sacrifices to provide for me, or my teachers, who have spent their own time pouring into me on more than just an academic level or my friends who have laughed and walked and cried with me through whatever comes our way. It's the fact that I can look back on the past almost 19 years of life and see God's hand in everything, the fact that I can say without a doubt that he has been guiding me along the entire way, and the fact that his truth has been the only thing to sustain me, which sums up my story. His overwhelming grace, truth, love, and peace are recklessly enveloping every aspect of my life not because I am worthy on my own, for I am not even worthy to sit in his presence or speak his name, but because he is a good God and he relentlessly pursues us.
3: It happened in first grade, the moment I accepted Christ on a framework of truth, love, and dedication, or at least I thought I had at the time. One memorable day, my first grade Bible teacher taught my class that when we receive Christ, the angels in heaven would throw a special celebration for our salvation. After returning home that day, I hurriedly and excitedly prayed the prayer to let Jesus into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And then I prayed it again, and again, and again, because in my mind, every time I prayed that prayer, I thought the angels would hold another grand celebration for my coming to faith. Questions started to arise. Were the angels really celebrating with every profession of faith, or was it only when I truly accepted Christ that they would celebrate? And if so, which prayer led to my salvation, or did any because I was accepting Christ on the notion there would be a heavenly party for me rather than on the recognition of my own need for saving? As only a first grader, I wrestled over the authenticity by which I approached my faith and contemplated questions over what my salvation truly entailed. These existential inquiries have underlined my life since. My name is Daniel Klein. I'm a lifer at Second Baptist School and will be majoring in business at Texas A&M. As the youngest child of a family of five, I've had the unique opportunity of observing four different faith stories in front of me. My mom, raised in Venezuela and under the Catholic faith, saw Jesus' transformative power and adopted a faith based on biblical truth, displaying to me a genuine faith built by God's word. My dad, born in Colombia and traveling the world at age 13 as a photographer, stands as the epitome of experiential wisdom in my life, demonstrating a steadfast faith forged by the trials of his past. My two older sisters, both graduates from Second, have exhibited a faith journey persisting through college and beyond, all the while holding me to a high standard and accountable for where I stand in my faith. My family's stories have given me invaluable wisdom and insight into how I lead my life. However, it had also served as a detriment as I developed a dependency on imitating the examples I had seen worked out before me, rather than taking full responsibility and ownership of my choices and faith. For me, seventh grade beach retreat began this process. Second had given me numerous opportunities to grow my faith. However, without a proper understanding of my own sin, my heart developed a sense of apathy toward the powerful message of God's mercy. Each retreat bridged the gap from my calloused view of the gospel to the realization of my own sin, leading to my ultimate decision for baptism. Sitting on the beach and surrounded by people longing for a connection with God, I could reflect on his creation and the sheer beauty of the world that surrounded me. I realized that if God could craft the complexities of the ocean or imagine the small crustaceans which crawled around me, he could surely oversee and guide my life in ways I would never know. On the day of baptism, I heard a message I listened to many times before. I was in need of a savior, and my sin was separating me from Christ. However, what struck me was the simple yet relatable theme of that year, reboot. Before, I had seen God as a distant arbiter between good and evil, rather than a personal being who gave me a gift I could never repay, one that could reset the direction of my life. Convicted, I stood up with a pulsating feeling in my chest and walked down the long stadium stairs to get baptized. I wish I could say that after that experience, I had shown remarkable growth and been a perfect representative for Christ. Yet, the following weeks and months were characterized with waning commitment. Questions started to arise. Was I just bound to a cyclical faith journey of constant hope and despair in my identity in Christ? How could I have grown up in the church, yet let such a fundamental understanding of what a relationship with God was? My family's firm faith examples, my first grade experience, and beach retreat had all softened my heart to begin asking these questions, which led up to the most impactful day of my faith, a warm day during the summer of my sophomore year. My sister had recommended a Christian podcast, and curiously, I chose an episode which looked interesting, cut an apple, and listened to it casually in the kitchen. I didn't expect the words to be so sharp and piercing to my faith, a faith nurtured my entire life by my family and the church. The speaker posed three key points that have shaped my relationship with Christ. The first was a question. Who have I helped bring into the kingdom in the past 60 days? I couldn't think of anyone. My love for Christ was so flawed and empty that it inspired no action. I realized I hadn't treated my words and conversations with the eternal significance and direness of sharing the overwhelmingly good news of eternal life with the creator of the universe, which if neglected will lead to eternal consequence. A second question then hit me. Had I done anything particularly outrageous for God? I couldn't say I had. I treated my faith with such a degree of comfort that I relished in the security of a relationship with Jesus, rather than following his very message of spreading the gospel through discomfort, judgment, or persecution. The third point deeply moved me. The speaker leaned into his mic, saying that it's people in the church who have been in the church their whole life, who have sat in the pews and have heard the preacher preach passionately and say, I'm just not going to do it, who are spiritually dead. James 2 says, The demons believe in God and shudder, and my faith hadn't even evoked that reaction out of me. Every time I heard the gospel and left without action, the more my heart had become hardened to the truth of God's word and blind to the desperate condition I remained in. I was sleepwalking in my faith, incubated by a preference to live coddled, comfortable, and conformed than on a mission for Christ." The anonymous author of Hebrews framed my faith precisely in his description of a perfect high priest. Hebrews 512 through 14 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses to, train, to distinguish between good and good. And evil. These verses harshly but rightly compare those who don't practice righteousness while being sustained by the quote-unquote milk of a weekly message to a spiritual baby, never growing up to take a role in God's kingdom. I was spiritually dormant and starving for an authentic faith, and only until I realized this fact could I pursue a groundwork of truth to base my actions. Questions started to be answered. My salvation meant pursuing Christ with a love that brought action a love that was connected to the fabric of my being, rather than only put on display when I thought it most suitable. Three practices have come to mature my faith, which I continue to use today. The first has proved very consequential to the Christian faith, reading the Bible, in a world which has constantly muddied the definition of truth. Scripture clearly outlines a worldview and story based on God's truth, giving me an invaluable tool for developing my beliefs. It wasn't until I had taken the time to sit down and open the Bible for myself that I could see the answers to my questions were lying in front of me the whole time. In the same vein, the second uh, practice was a study of apologetics. Second Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give a defense of the faith that is in you. And studying such arguments for the Christian faith has allowed me to know exactly what I believe and why. The third practice is something I actually carry everywhere I go with me, my pocket journal, Many things go in here, but most importantly, it holds crucial realizations I've had in my faith and key questions I have posed. With the many distractions available from daily life or technology, the process of physically articulating my thoughts on paper has not only allowed me to develop a coherent view of my faith, but has opened a valuable time of solitude which I may solely focus on Christ. In these pages, it has questions I've asked and answered, and it lets me be able to note patterns I may observe and address. Looking at my future in college, I view my inextricable duties as a follower of Christ in a generation plagued with loneliness, skewed ideologies, and cynicism. I also face an environment where the lukewarm Christians are faded out by temptation and distraction. However, there is a hope greater than anything this world has to offer, Jesus. Although I may not personally be able to change anyone, I know that God will continue to use my story to further his kingdom. Heavenly Father... Thank you for allowing us to gather here and worship you. Please change our hearts and lives in Jesus' name.